0: Hello and welcome to episode 330 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast, which as you know is greatly appreciated. And this week, a huge thank you to listener Gemma Gold for researching and writing this episode. Thank you so much Gemma. This week's story is from central London as we delve into the murky world of organised crime and jewel heists. Before we begin though we kick it all off with the one and the only, nope not Chesney Hawks, even more popular than him as if you could believe that. It's time to set some context with our guest the month and year game. So top of the UK charts this week was Start by Jam, not to be confused with The Jam, totally different band. In the US Upside Down by Diana Ross was Dominating and in Australia, the top spot was filled by Moscow from German Euro disco pop band Genghis Khan. You're a fan, I just know it. This year saw Vauxhall launch its latest model, the Astra. The Queen became the first British monarch to make a state visit to Vatican City. The SAS stormed the Iranian embassy, bringing to an end this siege that had lasted six days. Remember that? An ex-Beatle, John Lennon, was shockingly shot dead outside his apartment in New York. So did you guess the month and year? It was September 1980. Our story today takes us to London, and more specifically, to the home of high-end retailers Harrods and Harvey Nicks, among others. It is, of course, the exclusive enclave of Knightsbridge. Once a home of notorious highwaymen, robbers and cutthroats, Knightsbridge is now known as the most expensive place to live in London, with average houses going for about £3.5 million. As it's home to high-end retailers and jewellers, perhaps it's not entirely surprising that it has also been the location of some of the most high-profile crimes, because as we know, where there's money, crime is never far away. So let's make a start on today's case. We joined the story on September 11th, 1980, which was not unlike any other morning with the daily hustle and bustle of the city, as commuters and shoppers alike went about their business. A well-dressed man emerged from a car and started walking purposefully down Sloane Street to his destination, which was Graff Diamonds. Now, Graff Diamonds is somewhere that even people like me, not well versed in the jewellery trade, have heard of. It is, like H. Samuel, one of the most elite jewellers in the world and has around 50 stores worldwide. It is notable for owning the Windsor Yellows, which once belonged to Wallace Simpson. When we joined the story, the window display of graphs boasted the infamous 45-carat Marlborough diamond. Passers-by would stop to admire this flawless gemstone. In fact, people would come from all over the world to take a look at it, one of the most coveted items of jewellery that existed. It was once a cushion-shaped diamond that sat in a brooch, but it had been recut into a starburst and sat at the centrepiece of a necklace valued at the time back in 1980 at £400,000. The diamond had an interesting history. It had once belonged to Gladys Deacon, cousin of Winston Churchill, and she was the second wife of the Duke of Marlborough. Like me, during her prime, she was admired by many for her beauty and charm. But unfortunately, it didn't go well for Gladys. She was so desperate to keep her looks that she subjected herself to early and horribly ineffectual plastic surgery. Look, she went as far as injecting her nose with paraffin wax, leaving her horribly disfigured. And due to this, due to this damage she'd done to herself and her looks, she became a recluse. And sadly, she was eventually institutionalised in 1962, where she spent the remainder of her life until she died in 1977. When she died, this dazzling diamond was bought by Lawrence Graff. Now, after that brief historical interlude, let's head back to the events of September 11th, 1980, where we left off, and back to our well-dressed man walking down the road. He was dressed in blue check trousers, a jacket and a trilby, so the security guard didn't hesitate to let him into the high-end jewellers. After all, he looked like any other potential customer at that time. But as we know, looks can be very deceptive. And once inside the shop, he pulled a revolver from his jacket pocket and ordered the staff and customers to the ground. Following shortly behind him was his accomplice. Now, some reports say his accomplice was dressed as a sheik, and others claim he was wearing a fedora and a sharp suit. This is still a hot topic of contention, and we are talking about the days before CCTV cameras, so this remains an unsolved argument. But what the eyewitnesses could agree on is that the second man was brandishing a hand grenade. Terror struck the staff as the reality of what was happening dawned on them. They were in the centre of an audacious armed robbery. The men's aim was clear. The theft of the magnificent marble diamond. It took the two men just a little under a minute to pull off their highly planned raid. Placing the diamond in a briefcase and picking up several other items, which included a jewel worth some £200,000 and 18 other stones from the window display, they calmly left the store. No one was hurt and by all accounts with the exception of the handgun and the hand grenade, the two men were softly spoken and well, they were rather pleasant. None of the agitation and raised voices we often hear about in robberies. How the men made their escape isn't quite clear with differing accounts of how they left the scene of the crime. One cashier at the shop said that despite having been told to remain where they were, and indeed threatened with a hand grenade, they followed the men out of the store and watched them as they casually got into their waiting vehicle, a Fiat. Another account is also from a worker at the store, an accountant, who claimed that when he was coming back from a lunch break, he heard two men talk about a lucky escape, and this left him feeling that something was a little amiss with the two men, he had seen exiting the store. Watching the men, he noted that both wore white gloves and he thought they had fake beards, especially when one of the beards appeared to start drooping. The witness made a mental note of the number plate of the vehicle as it drove off. And as you'll know, it's not uncommon in the event of a crime for witnesses to give very different versions of the same event and detectives have to examine the common ground to establish potential facts. In this case, the one thing the witnesses agreed on was that one of the thieves had a badly deformed hand, a piece of information that could potentially be vital further down the line. Lawrence Graff later said of the ordeal, They picked out the very special pieces from the window. It was all over in less than a minute. He did go on to say that it would have been impossible for the thieves to sell on the diamond as it had been recut into the distinctive modern style, rendering it, as is often the case, way too hot to sell on the open market. In fact, due to the high profile of this particular diamond and its unique cut, it was more likely that it would go to a private collector or it would be recut or melted down. Perhaps this was the reason that the thieves had completely ignored the far more valuable 70 carat idol diamond that was also on display in the store. Detectives immediately started work taking statements and tracking down the car, which one witness had thought was the getaway vehicle. And luckily, they'd been able to memorize the registration number. By the way, I bet you do that a lot too, don't you? Yep, and me. It took just a few hours for detectives to trace the Fiat to Hertz car hire at Heathrow. And what they found was very surprising. It appeared that the thieves were not that concerned about hiding their identities before or indeed after the event. The getaway vehicle had been rented in one of their names and they were staying at the nearby Mount Royal Hotel, not under pseudonyms as you may expect. The two men were Art Rachel and Joseph Scarlese. And with this knowledge, a quick inquiry at Heathrow Airport showed that two plane tickets had been purchased under the names of Art Rachel and Joseph Scalese for a plane that had already departed for its destination, Chicago O'Hare Airport. And further inquiries revealed that the two men were none other than well-known Chicago mobsters, with the nicknames that invariably go with being part of this world. In this case, it was Joseph the Monk Scalese and Arthur the Brain Rachel. It transpired that Scalese was named the monk due to claims he'd made when he was younger, that he would become a priest. But, mm, that didn't appear to be going too well. And Rachel was named the brain due to his IQ of 162. Now, if only he'd used part of that brain to plan their getaway. In these pre-internet days, the next step for detectives was to pick up the phone and call the local police in Chicago to ensure that they were there to meet the mobsters when their plane touched down which was just 11 hours after the robbery however neither man was in possession of any of the stolen items so detectives were left with two rather major questions firstly where was the Marlborough diamond and secondly just what were two men from the chicago outfit a notorious crime family that dealt in racketeering hitmen and gambling, doing stealing a diamond from jewelers in London. It certainly appeared that that had been the sole purpose of their trip to England. With such a seemingly simple case, you may expect a quick trial and to rapidly wrap things up. But unfortunately not, as Scalese and Rachel, using every trick in the book, fought extradition for nearly three years until finally their last appeal failed. They were finally turned over to the British authorities in 1983, where they faced trial. In August of 1984, they were unsurprisingly found guilty and sentenced to 16 years in prison to be served on the Isle of Wight at the notorious HMP Parkhurst. But this is not the end of the story. Scalesi and Rachel, clearly unimpressed at their incarceration on the Isle of Wight, took legal action. And in 1987, they sued the then US Attorney General, alleging that he was capricious and arbitrary in refusing to permit them to serve the rest of their sentences in the US. The lawsuit was unsuccessful and subsequently thrown out of court. In May 1989, an FBI investigator travelled across the Atlantic to offer the men a deal. It was a reduced sentence. If they could reveal the whereabouts of the diamond. But would they take this dangled carrot? The answer, as you may expect, is a big no. Scalese refused to reveal the whereabouts, and Rachel, as arrogant as ever, refused to leave his cell to meet the investigator. Perhaps, despite his earlier protestations, he was enjoying his free room and board, and was planning a trip to Black Gang Chine on his release. In one letter written to the investigator who'd been imploring Scalesi to confess, Scalesi quoted the philosopher Nietzsche saying, You have your way, I have my way. As for the right way, the correct way, and the only way, it does not exist. With the police investigation wound down, all hopes of finding the diamond seemed lost. That was until out of the blue, a London cab driver came forward claiming that the two men from Chicago were in his taxi on the day of the robbery. They'd hailed him down and asked him to drive them to Heathrow Airport but en route they'd asked him to locate a post office so they could mail a package before they left the city and the country. The cab driver was tasked with taking the package into the post office and posting it on their behalf something he happily did without question. Now this is an interesting one. In a highly unusual move, having tracked down the post office clerk, the police put him under hypnosis, presumably to assist his powers of recall. Under hypnosis, the clerk confirmed that he had indeed handled a package on September 11th, 1980, in the afternoon, and that it did have a New York address on it but despite the best efforts of the hypnosis, he could not recall the exact address. So could it be that the package contained the marble diamond? Was this the break they'd been waiting for, for a decade? The police certainly thought so. Their hopes were raised further when they established that Scalese's sister lived in New York at the time of the heist, but despite an extensive investigation, the trail yet again went cold. In 1999, an unnamed associate of Scalesi confirmed that the monk had indeed mailed the diamond to his sister's address in New York hours after it had been stolen. From here, it disappeared into the mafia underworld never to be seen again, for the marble diamond is to this day, this is March 2023, it still hasn't been found. The heist we've spoken about today is believed to be the most valuable unsolved diamond heist in British history so far. It is, however, unlikely that our two thieves benefited from the robbery, at least not financially. For shortly after their release from prison in 1992, they resumed their life of crime, slipping back into the criminal underworld and resuming their places as high-ranking members of the Chicago Outfit. That's not to say that Scalazi didn't capitalise on his fame. In 1999, in an act maybe as close to audacious as the robbery itself, Scalazi, for a not shabby fee, was hired as a consultant on the Johnny Depp film Public Enemies about notorious bank robber John Dillinger. And who says that crime doesn't pay? If listening to this and you have the right contacts, there is still a reward for finding this diamond. It stands at just under £100,000. Despite their increasing years, the two thieves still remain tight-lipped. It's unlikely that even with the ever-present carrot being dangled, that they would go against their code of honour. As is so often the case, theories on the fate of the diamond, there are so many of them. Some claim that the diamond is buried somewhere in the UK. A number of people have claimed that the diamond has been melted down or broken down in numerous smaller gems. And Rachel himself, when asked about it, told his interviewers that it's just none of their business. Scalazi has been a little more forthcoming, stating, as recently as 2011, that if insurers Lloyds wanted to pay enough money, maybe they could find it. So will we ever know what happened to the gemstone? Perhaps they no longer know, perhaps they do. What is certain is that the truth of the whereabouts of the diamond and why it was taken will be taken to their graves for both men and now in their late 80s. You'd like to think that Graff's jewellers had learned a valuable lesson from this. Perhaps they had. But that seems unlikely for a while this was the first theft from one of their stores it certainly wasn't the last. In fact, since the events of nineteen eighty, they've been subjected to no less than six major heists. I guess the reality is whatever steps they take, it's it's almost irrelevant. Wherever there is money, there is crime. So what do you make of what we've heard of today? I suppose the central question for me is does crime pay? It's a question I ponder a lot when I see how low-level drug dealers and villains run around and ruin their lives when earning way less than the UK minimum wage for the pleasure of their gangster lifestyles. I don't see the glamour in it, and there's certainly no money for so many of them. I suppose it's that way of life, isn't it? Not working a nine-to-five doing your own thing, but for less than minimum wage, really? Really? But when you move up a few levels to what we've heard today, these guys at the top of their game, despite stints in prison, it would appear that crime does pay. Was the diamond stolen to order, or was it an opportunistic smash and grab, or be it without the smash aspect? It's got to be planned, hasn't it? Do you think it's buried somewhere in the UK, or do you believe, as the authorities do, that it was mailed to the US and lost indefinitely? I'm always rather amazed at how lauded criminals like the Mafia are. Are you? I suppose it's the the films, isn't it? The Hollywood effect. But I can't quite get my head around how a man like Scalazi, with all his connections to serious crimes, could be hired by Hollywood. But then again, where there is money and places like the film industry, there is always crime or connections to crime. Maybe it's just naive of me or anyone else to think otherwise. So thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the 37th most popular true crime podcast. If you'd like to discuss today's show or any other aspect of UK true crime then do please head over to Facebook where there are 90,000 of us ready to talk everything UK true crime 24-7, 365 days a year. It is many things, and I say this a lot but it's never ever boring. Loads to talk about. Just head to Facebook and search UK True Crime, just in case you weren't sure. If you like what you heard today and it's left you clamouring for more, I mean who would blame you, then why not head on over to Patreon, where for as little as £1 a month, you can access over 50 bonus full-length episodes. Why don't you join today, you can cancel if you want to at any time at all. Just head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. Okay, so that's all for me for another week. So thank you, thank you Gemma Gold for researching and writing such a fascinating story. So until we speak again on Tuesday, please do take it easy and remember, despite all the others, and there are so many of them, goodness me, I think today I've met loads of them. Stay classy. Cheerio for now.